Would you join me for just a word of prayer this morning? Almighty God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in worship. We thank you for the reason to be here, which is your son. God, we ask that you would open our minds, our hearts, our very being to you in this experience today, that in being here, we would be moved and transformed by your Holy Spirit. Be with us, be with our words, be with our song. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all who agreed said, amen. Well, friends, today we are launching our new series on miracles, miracles just ahead. We'll be talking today about two miracle stories, all in one miracle story, um, as we look at praying for a miracle and the gospel of Mark and the stories of healing and new life that we find in Christ. And I'm really excited about where the series is going as it leads us into October 22nd, our Miracle Sunday event. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, Lord, may they be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I have a question for you this morning. Have you ever prayed for a miracle? Have you ever prayed for a miracle? Now, I'm not talking about asking God to let your team win the big game, you know, over the weekend, which for some of you, knowing your teams, it would only take a miracle for them to win. But have you ever asked God to, to, to work a miracle in your life or in the life of someone you love? Now, some sort of, you know, happenstance prayer. Right? Not, not some, um, I'm sitting on the couch eating ice cream and I want to lose weight prayer or you know, winning the Powerball. But have you ever actually prayed for a real miracle in your life? You know, for all intents and purposes, miracles are impossible. Right? If it were not for God. If it were not for God, miracles are impossible. See, miracles are, are not chance occurrences. They're not some form of magic pulled over, pulled over the eyes of the ignorant. Miracles, uh, miracles of the Bible are, are radical interventions of God which defy the natural laws of the universe, right? A simple way of framing a miracle is, is an event where the, where the effect doesn't match the cause, right? The effect doesn't match the cause. So, for instance, if we take the gravitational pull on the Earth at the equator, which we all know is 9.789 meters per second square, we all learned it in sixth grade and casually forgotten seventh, um, but we all know that, right? Everyone, the common knowledge. So, cause and effect. If we dropped an object, barring any, any unforeseen variables, right, the pull of gravity would pull that object towards the ground at roughly 10 meters per second square, right? We can test it. Did it fall? Yeah. Okay, all right. Whew. That's right. So, it's a miracle. It, it, no, it's not a miracle. It's science. It happens each and every time, right? It happens each and every time because... The gravitational force of the earth is 10, point, or 10 meters per second squared. The cause and the effect match. Simple, right? Here's the thing about miracles, though. Miracles can never be proven nor disproven through science, right? Because science is reproducible, right? Science happens continually, and we can, we can see it happen, right? Every time we drop an object, it's going to be pulled to the earth at 10 meters per second squared. Each and every time, it's science, it's reproducible. But miracles are single solitary events in history that God does which defy those natural laws, and they're not reproducible. And since they're not reproducible, they cannot be proven nor disproven by science. 
Gravity is constant. Miracles are not. And we find miracles throughout the Bible, in the Old and New Testament alike. Um, and in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus enacts four kinds of miracles. There are four kinds of miracles, and they all serve the same purpose. They, they, they mean to, to show the world that Jesus has authority, right, over some specific things. And the four things that Jesus has authority over are, are first is nature, right? And this would be like the miracles of Jesus calming the storm, Right? Um, another kind of miracle that we see in the Gospel of Mark is um, Jesus' power over demons. Right? So this would be like Legion, the guy with all the, all the spirits in him that are sent into the, into the pigs and they go into the water and they drown. Um, the, the third and the fourth kinds is Jesus' um, authority over illness and Jesus' authority over death. And all four serve the same purpose, to prove Jesus is who he says he is, which is the Son of God. So I want to ask you again, have you ever prayed for a miracle? Have you ever prayed for God to do something that defies the natural laws of the universe? Have you ever prayed for a miracle? It takes a certain kind of mentality in life to ask God for a miracle. It, re it really does. Those of you who have asked God to move in miraculous ways know this place in life, it, it honestly takes a, a place of surrender, right? It's at the moment in our life where we, we give up, when we realize that we can't do it on our own anymore, when the medicine doesn't cure or cause remission, right? It's, it's, it's when, when there's no hope left and our strength fails. It's in that moment where we fall to our knees and we pray and ask God to work a miracle. And there's nothing wrong with that moment. The reality is this is the same place that the people of, of the Bible found themselves in when they asked God for a miracle too. It's just the common space we find ourselves in when we ask God to work a miracle. And so our story begins in Mark, in Mark chapter 5, and we, we find it in verse 21. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a crowd, a large crowd, gathered around him on the shore. Now, set this in context quickly. When he was on the other side of the lake, that's the story of Legion, where he, he casts the demons out of Legion, and they go into the pigs, and then they go into the water, and they say, Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you in our country anymore. Right? You're a little too radical for us, so leave. Right? And so that's where he was and where he's coming back from. And so the story goes on. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Yaris, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Right away, right away we know that something big is happening here because we know that in reading Mark in its entirety, we know that Mark never uses anyone's name, right? And so the fact that the name is given of this person, Yaris, not only his name but his position, the leader of a synagogue is given. We know something important is happening here. Yaris was a man of power. He was a man of status. He was someone of importance that everyone would have known in an act of desperation, he falls down on the ground before Jesus, a traveling preacher and healer. This is an amazing act, right? And this is something that the people in the surrounding community would have gawked at, right? This is a big deal. This person, the most important person in town, groveling at the feet of Jesus, 
Someone with seemingly unended resources, face down on the ground, praying for a miracle. And not even a miracle for himself, right? Who's this miracle for? Who's the miracle for? His daughter. Yeah, his daughter. So Jesus goes with him. Jesus went with him, and all the people of the crowd followed crowded around him, and a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I could just touch his robe, if I could just touch his robe, I would be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. An unnamed woman, right? An unnamed woman who was not only broke, right? She'd spent all that she had, but a social outcast, a social outcast. Everyone in the community would have known her and would have known to stay away from her. You see, the Jews believed at this time that blood was the life force, right? The life force. And so to bleed or to have blood on you was, was to be unclean because if you bled, it meant you were wasting your life force. You were wasting what God had given you. She could not be touched. She could not, be, uh, she could not live within the community for fear that she might touch someone else and make them unclean. She was a social outcast living on the fringes of society. Realize the two people here we're talking about the top one percenter in the community and the bottom one percenter in the community. Both praying for a miracle. This brings me to my first point today. When it comes to miracles, God has no bias. No bias at all. It doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter what your name isn't. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what society thinks of you. It doesn't matter if you have everything or you have nothing. It doesn't matter if you are asking God for a miracle, if you're asking God for a miracle for someone else, or if you're daring enough to reach out in faith and take it. God has no bias because here's the thing, folks. When God moves in a miraculous way, God moves. It's something that God does, not something that we do. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around and asked the crowd, who touched my robe? <laughs> and the disciples said to him, look at this crowd around you. Look at this. How can you ask us who touched you? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, daughter, it's a very specific name to give to an unnamed woman, isn't it? I think it's very telling here. Daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Wow. Like Yaris had just done, this unknown woman, this unknown person fell at the feet of Jesus not to plead for a miracle. She wasn't begging for a miracle, but to confess that something miraculous had happened to her. Whether it's falling before Jesus and pleading for a miracle or falling before Jesus and honoring the work that has been done, they both find themselves in the same place on the ground at the feet of Jesus. What interests, what interests me more, though, is, is the reality of the crowd. Have you ever wondered about this crowd? Think about it. This crowd is, is pressing around Jesus, right? Think of yourself like in the airport trying to board a plane or, or, or at, at the train station or something where you've been surrounded by people. People are running into Jesus all the time, right? He's, he's stuck in the middle of a crowd. Why didn't any of them get healed? Why is it that this unnamed woman who touched Jesus was healed, but everyone else who was in the crowd who touched Jesus didn't. Ever wondered about that? The answer is that it takes more than proximity to Jesus to be healed. Augustine once said, few are they who by faith touch him. Multitudes are they who throng about him. This woman was not part of the crowd of onlookers. The second point today is that miracles require more than proximity. More than proximity. If you have prayed for a miracle, have you, have you simply been in proximity to Jesus? Or have you reached out in faith to touch him? Ask anyone who prays for a miracle and does not get the answer that they desire. Walking with the Christian crowd following Jesus and watching how he works and what he does does not buy you a miracle. It doesn't buy you a miracle. Remember that a miracle is a work of God, not of humankind. So while he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Yaris, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Yaris, Don't be afraid, just have faith. Don't be afraid, just have faith. Yaris realized this. Yaris had, had, had gotten Jesus to commit. Jesus was on his way to his house, and he was, going to, he was going to come, and he was going to save his daughter, and everything was going to work out just the way he had planned. It was all going to work out. Jesus is coming to my house and he's going to save my daughter. But then she got in the way. This unnamed woman interrupted him. He was on the way to the house. And Jesus had to stop and figure out what was going on. Have you ever wondered what was going through Yaris' mind at that moment? I can imagine. Why her? Why her? Why did she get the miracle and my daughter didn't? Why did she get healed? Jesus, you said you were going to come and help me. 
But Jesus says this. He says, don't be afraid, just have faith. And I wonder, I really do wonder, did those words actually bring comfort to him in that moment? I don't know. I don't know. Don't be afraid, just have faith. The truth that we must all come to realize is that fear, fear is the opposing force to faith. Fear consumes our faith. It consumes our hearts and our lives. It eats away at us. So whether you're praying for a miracle today or not, Living a life of faith means that we step out of this place of fear and step into the place of faith because fear is the opposite of faith. Standing at this crossroads, Yaris is standing here. He's been told his daughter has died. The father has lost a daughter. Or maybe the mother has lost a son. Or maybe the parent has lost a child. Or a child has lost a parent. Maybe a friend has lost a a friend, standing in this moment, this, this emotional crisis, this life-altering event, Jesus speaks to Yaris and says, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Don't be afraid. Just have faith because your fear will consume you. I want to say that together. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Everyone together, loud and proud. One, two, three, go. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. These are words that we are called to live by. Then Jesus, he stopped the crowd and he wouldn't let them go any farther with him except James, Peter, and John. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. You see, in this time period, um, they would hire professional wailers to come to your house if someone passed away and they they would be weeping and wailing publicly for everyone to hear. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. Every time I get to this point in this story, my mind goes to one of my favorite movies of all time, right? Because she's not dead. She's only asleep. What? I want you to just go with me in my mind for a minute to this video, one of my favorite movies of all time. I want you to see this short clip. Let's roll that. Daddy can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Ah, mostly dead. He's slightly alive. Ah, all dead. Well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. (laughs) Miracle Max from The Princess Bride, one of my top five favorite movies of all time. I love that movie. Um, And for the record, she was dead. All dead, not mostly dead. She was all dead. And just as you laughed, well, some of you laughed. Some of you like, I don't get this, Tim, but some of you laughed. As you laughed at this, the people who were wailing laughed at Jesus. What do you mean, she's not dead? Of course she's dead. You see, understand the people of this time period were not ignorant when it came to death. And they fully understood the difference between being dead and being in a coma. Okay, 
She was not mostly dead. She was all the way dead. But please don't fall under the illusion that people of antiquity were ignorant of the reality of their mortality and the effect that it has played throughout history. So the crowd laughs at Jesus. They laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying, holding her hand. He said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. And they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus then gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to get her something to eat. Yara's 12-year-old daughter was resuscitated by Jesus. She wasn't resurrected, right? Because she was only resuscitated because she would live only to die again someday. Right? So she was resuscitated. But notice the simple connection here between these two people and these two miracles. The woman who had suffered with bleeding, how long did she suffer for? Twelve years. How old was Yaris' daughter? Twelve years. Her entire lifetime, she had spent in pain and sickness and suffering. Each miracle, however, brought new life, right? New connection. When Jesus entered the scene, life took a new path. There was healing, there was rest, being, hope restored. It's amazing to me how interconnected everything turns out to be. The social elite and the social outcast, both recipients of a miracle. Both came to experience new life through Christ. As a church, we're praying for a miracle too. We are praying for God to use us, to use all of us as representatives to Christ, for Christ in our community and in our world. We are praying for a miracle on Miracle Sunday so that through, through, through our ability to get out of debt, we will be able to reach the community around us in a new way and at a new level. Not, by, not covered by these constraints of debt that shackle us, able to be focused and ready to move wherever the Holy Spirit calls us to go, wherever the Holy Spirit leads us to go, living out our mission as a church, as a community, to connect people, all people, to the life and love of Jesus Christ. Because when we are connected to the life and love of Jesus Christ, we too find our hope restored. We too see our life transformed. Because God loves us so much, he's willing to meet us where we are, but he's not willing to leave us the way that we were. We know that miracles happen to all people because God has no bias when it comes to miracles. God's miracle, miracles are a sign for all people that healing is possible, that wholeness is available for all people, that hope can be restored. And as a community of faith, though, we must, we must not simply walk in the crowd. We must not simply be followers that, that are in the crowd around Jesus. We must be bold enough to step out in faith and reach for Christ because it takes more than proximity to have a miracle. 
We must be bold and strive for the greatness that God has in store for us in this world because God is not finished with us yet. And we can't let fear, we cannot let fear of the unknown steal our faith away because fear is the opposing force to faith. We must walk in faith, trusting that God will see us through no matter where we go because we desire to be a faithful community that reaches all people and connects all people to this life-transforming power of Christ. We desire to be faithful, right? But faithfulness is not passive, right? Sometimes we are under the illusion that faithfulness is, is passive, but pa- faithfulness is not passive. It is active, right? Yaris stepped outside of, the, uh, of his cultural expectations, fell at the feet of Jesus, Because the miracle that he desired was grander, was bigger than his social expectation. The unnamed woman reached out in faith, stepped outside of cultural norms, did what she was not supposed to do in that culture. Because the miracle she desired, the miracle she needed was more important than her social constraints. You see, our our culture tells us that we're supposed to take care of ourselves, right? We're supposed to take care of ourselves. We're supposed to provide for ourselves, save for our future, and take care of our own. But as Christian people, we know, we know and understand that our lives is so, are so much more than just about us and what we want. Because a life of faithfulness is a life lived out fully in love of God and in love of neighbor. In Wesley's sermon, John Wesley's sermon, The Use of Money, he instructs his listeners to do three things with money, and I know most of you have heard these before. But just for review, he tells his listeners to earn all that you can, ethically, right? To save all that you possibly can, and to give all that you possibly can. So, what does it look like? What does your faithfulness in action look like today? What are we asking you to do? Here's it. Here it is. These are the five things we're asking you to do today. We're asking you to inventory your assets. How have you saved? How have you earned over these last few years? Then we would like you to inventory your generosity. How have you given over the last year? Then we would like you to define to yourself and your household what is a comfortable gift for Miracle Sunday? What's comfortable? Then we want you to decide as a, as a household, what is an extravagant gift? What is that gift that makes you a little nauseous inside? What is it that, you're like, I don't know if we could do this, but it would be really cool if we could. And then lastly, we want you to pray over your finances. I know most of you already do, but we want you to take a moment and just pray as a household over your finances, over your earning, your saving, and your giving. And pray for God's guidance. guidance. Notice, we're not asking you to sign a card. We're not asking you to write a check. We are simply asking you to, to assess where you are financially and to pray for God's guidance over the funds that you have been charged to be stewards over. Because we as a community of faith intend to be faithful, and that requires action. And we intend as a community to continue to reach out and in love into the world and help people connect with the life and love of Jesus Christ so that everyone can experience the miracle of new life found in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, in whom 
all of our faith rests. As we begin this journey exploring your miracles, we ask that you would work within us. When fear begins to invade our life, grow our faith and let us, help us to cast aside all fear. As we open ourselves to your miracle in our midst, use our lives, use your church and use this community and move in our world. It's through your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to give us life anew that we pray and all who agreed said, Amen.